0: The one mine that's being put into care and maintenance produces about 20% of global cobalt supply. And so all of a sudden, we're looking like we may see a shortage of cobalt much sooner than we expected. Uh, And so not only, frankly, is one of the uh, arguments for the cobalt 27 takeover sort of, you know, doesn't apply anymore, but we may be looking at uh, a nearer term rally in the price of cobalt uh, based on supply constraints
1: trilogy metals is a world-class developer in alaska's ambler mining district the company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper 3 billion pounds of zinc over 1 million gold equivalent ounces and over 77 million pounds of cobalt trilogy's arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of 1.4 billion dollars with a 33 percent internal rate of return trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in alaska the company is well capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. Greetings and welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers, and today we are going to be talking about the EV revolution, lithium cobalt nickels rare earths i have on the line with me for this episode a gentleman who manages a fund the fund is a massive capital i'm speaking to will thompson he's the founder and managing partner and he focuses on a lot of these electrical vehicle commodities so i asked him to come on the show to discuss his outlook regarding these things so with that being said will welcome to Money stock education
0: hi bill thanks for having me uh look forward to so, reviewing with you guys the state of the industry.
1: Well, let's start with you offering a little background on yourself, your investment experience, and uh, your fund and the investment focus of your fund.
0: Right. Okay. So, um, Massive Capital is uh, about three years old as of last month, I believe it was. Uh, we're a long-short equity fund based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and we focus, as you sort of suggested. Um, on basic materials, energy, and industrial companies. Uh, We're sort of fundamental bottom-up stock pickers in sort of difficult industries to do that in. Um, At any given time, I'd say about a third of our portfolio is in mining companies of different kinds. Right now, that's uh, principally battery-related miners, uh, gold, and uranium. Um, a couple other things here and there, uh, we run a fairly concentrated portfolio. I would say that our, at the moment, our top five positions are about 50% of the fund. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's who we are. It's myself and a partner. Our backgrounds are, uh, all in, in energy, in mining in different sort of aspects of it. Um, my partner has worked for battery startups and is quite knowledgeable on electricity markets. Um, myself, I worked, uh, in finance investment banking to start, and then worked for a Lloyd's London insurance syndicate, writing political and credit risk insurance policies for project finance for, for mining companies, mostly, um, and commodity traders, uh, and, uh, That's that's sort of who we are and what we're about.
1: And I'm going to put a – for listeners, I'm going to put a link in the show notes below and post it on our – it'll take you to miningstockeducation.com and the post for this interview. There I'm also going to put a couple of – a few reports that uh, massive Capital has uh, written up. One of those reports is about the proposed takeover by Paul Investments of Cobalt 27. I'd like to kick off the discussion, Will, with you offering up, for those that aren't aware, if you could just provide uh, an introductory overview of what the proposed transaction would look like, and then what is your company's, your, your fund's assessment of this?
0: Right. So, um, cobalt 27, for those who don't know, uh, is, uh, call it a bit of a, a mismatch, mismatch of, um, mining sort of opportunities. Uh, the company was originally started, uh, to house, uh, sort of a stockpile of cobalt, uh, physical cobalt that they have in a warehouse in Rotterdam somewhere. Um, it's about, uh, I think it's a 1,000 tons. I'd have to go back and double-check. Um, IPO'd in 2017. Since then, it has acquired a number of uh, royalties and streams in uh, pre-production, um, mostly nickel mines, but also a, a mix of, of nickel and cobalt mines. Uh, and they've acquired a uh, JV interest in a nickel cobalt mine uh, in Papua New Guinea called Ramu, uh, and sort of the crown jewel, uh, of the company besides the, the physical cobalt, um, and the interest in Ramu is a, a cobalt stream from, uh, vale's Vosi Bay mine up in Canada. Uh, so the company has gone through, uh, some volatility, as one would expect with cobalt prices and sort of the excitement about EVs in 2017, 2018, traded up to as high as, I believe, $12 Canadian. Um, is now down to, I think, 3.85 dollars or something as of today, a couple hours ago, maybe. So uh, the Pala transaction, Pala is a private equity firm based out of Switzerland uh, that has been invested in the company since the start. They own about 18% of the company at the moment. And they have very close relationship with the management team. The CEO used to work at Paula. There are a couple other people who used to work at Paula in the management team. Um, They came in uh, in June and proposed uh, to buy the stock that they don't own. for uh, a total consideration of about 500 and 500 million dollars Canadian, about a 40 percent or yeah about a forty percent premium or so to the 20day the average uh, of the stock at the time. Now the transaction from our opinion is a, a bit of a, a disaster for shareholders, um, mostly because management, you know They acquired this stockpile of cobalt in 2017 at about $60,000 a ton. It's now trading at about $30,000 a ton on the London Metals Exchange. They acquired the Vosey Bay stream for $300 million last year. This transaction values that stream at about $180 million. Um, and as part of the transaction, shareholders will get uh, about we'll say $3.86 or so in cash. uh, And then they'll get the remainder of the uh, about $5.75 in a share uh, that's being offered in stock in a new company called Nickel 28, which uh, will hold the royalties and streams in the pre-production assets, as well as the 8.6% 8.6% interest that uh, Cobalt 27 has in the Ramu nickel mine. Um, at the current time, uh, you know, again, the market is valuing or, or trading the stock at about $3.86, despite the fact that there's an offer out for $5.75. Um, the market doesn't like the transaction. And a lot of that has to do, in our opinion, with the fact that you know, you're significantly undervaluing the Vosi Bay stream. Uh, you're significantly undervaluing the long-term value of the physical cobalt, uh, and then you're significantly overvaluing um, the streams and royalties that are, uh, you know, they're definitely worth something. Um, but again, these are all pre-production mines. And as all your listeners know, you know, there's a lot of risk involved there. Um, and then you have the Ramu asset, which, uh, is sort of being thrown in there into nickel 28 and is definitely worth uh, something. Um, we think it could be worth as much as $3.86 Canadian. Um, and so worth more than the proposed uh, nickel 28 sort of implied value. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how that value you know, would be realized by shareholders. Um, the nickel 28 that shareholders will end up with will be undersized Uh, It'll have very limited working capital, Um, I think it'll have about $5 million or so. And uh, the only path towards uh, value creation for that company uh, will be the acquisition of further streams and royalties, uh, which will require them to go out to the market and uh, issue shares or raise a lot of debt. Uh, either way, the the shareholders who remain are, are going to get the sort of short end of the stick on that one. So um, overall, the Cobalt 27 transaction is, in our mind, an example of a private equity firm uh, coming in to um, sort of make a, a, an underbid, if you will, for a company that is uh, facing sort of uh, a tough market. Um, and stealing some assets from minority shareholders
1: yeah and it's not wrong of you to voice your opinion as a shareholder saying you feel like this is stealing because when this has been dissected by a number of people on the internet there's a lot of people that aren't happy and one of the things that's often pointed out is the termination and change of control benefits apparently from my understanding the ceo gets about 7.7 million us for change of control and then other employees get 5.3 million, 2 million. So there's an incentive for them to change control even though sh- on a share price basis the shareholders have lost value over the last year, some the management actually can get kind of a windfall here.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the the termination fee is $15.5 million on a market cap You know, 15.5 million US on a a 250 dollar 250 million dollar market cap US company um, that for all intents and purposes has no no assets generating any cash flow um at the moment. You know, so so it's quite a steep termination fee. And then all in the the fees, uh and I'm including the sort of advisory fees here, which we looked at recently were about six million. Um, but all in, you're looking at transaction fees, uh, of about 21, $22 million. Um, so the CEO who used to work for Pala, uh, is gonna sort of exit this transaction as the CEO of nickel 28. So he's not going to lose his job. Um, and he's going to pocket about $7.7 million, um, in a combination of, uh, just straight cash, um, payments for uh, shares he had accumulated in Cobalt 27. And then I believe uh, on top of that 7.7 million, he's going to get some shares in Nickel 28 as well. So the incentives for this management team to act on the behalf of minority shareholders, or frankly, just to act as a proper fiduciary in general, uh, is just non-existent. so it's a prime example of uh, corporate governance gone wrong. Uh, we, we think we're seeing more of this with private equity firms these days. Um, but, but this is a particularly nasty example, in our opinion.
1: And you'll be voting against the transaction. And then you also wrote that you don't believe the exit Uh, the acquisition will be successful. Why is that? Uh,
0: So that's, I mean, so yes, we will be voting against the transaction. Um, Everyone we've spoken with who is a shareholder that has also voiced that same sort of opinion. Um, And I know that there have been a couple of funds who have voiced that opinion publicly as well. Uh, In regards to not thinking it's going to go through, um, in order for the transaction to go through, there's a vote on September 12th. And they need a majority of the uh, shareholders besides Pala uh, to to vote yes. And we just don't think it's going to go through, which is a speculation based solely on the way it has traded since the transaction. I think it traded as high as maybe, let's say, I'm going to get my numbers wrong, but let's say it's traded as high as $4.25, yet there is a $5.75 offer. the market doesn't seem to buy that this is this is a good this is a good transaction. That spread has not closed at all. Um, and so we just sort of suspect based on the way it's traded and based on our conversation with a fairly wide group of shareholders, uh, that many are going to vote no.
1: So there is, that an is a speculation though. Right. So there's an arbitrage there right yeah. now, obviously. If it does go through there's a potential arbitrage. But what are some, other than that obvious arbitrage, are there any other short-term trading possibilities around this proposed transaction? But
0: besides the arbitrage, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think that if you're you're really long-term focused, uh, it's not a terrible price to buy in at, uh, at least to start a position, um, with the idea being that if you get bought out, you know, you haven't lost anything, you've presumably made some money in a pretty short, pretty short order. And if uh, it doesn't go through, uh, we still have to deal with uh, figuring out what to do with this current management team, which we personally would like to see go, um, but that's still sort of something that's got to be worked on. Uh, But these assets are definitely investable assets for the long term. Um, So I view uh, a purchase here, frankly, of the stock outright. Uh, as a potentially interesting opportunity from a risk reward perspective. The downside risk seems fairly limited uh, and the upside risk is both, you know, there's a short term potential and then there's the long term potential. Um, And and which comes to pass will depend on the catalyst, if you will, uh, how the vote goes.
1: This episode of Mining Stock Education is brought to you by U.S. Gold Corp. U.S. Gold Corp is a U.S.-focused gold exploration and development company advancing high-potential projects in Wyoming and Nevada. U.S. Gold Corp has consolidated a district on Nevada's productive Cortez trend and is advancing the Copper King project towards production in Wyoming. Led by a team of prolific company builders and renowned explorers, including Dave Mathewson, who's directly responsible for several major Nevada gold discoveries, U.S. Gold Corp is well-financed and has an extremely tight share structure with less than 20 million shares outstanding, and it trades on a major stock exchange, the NASDAQ, under the ticker USAU. To learn more, go to usgoldcorp.gold. That's usgoldcorp.gold. So that kind of leads us into your outlook for cobalt. Share with listeners, what's your perspective on uh, the future demand and supply around cobalt?
0: As everybody knows, cobalt is an important component to sort of battery Uh, cathode architecture at the moment. Uh, And with the emergence of EVs, uh, there's significant future demand for cobalt. Um, We think that the move we saw uh, 2017, 2018, um, that was the sort of speculative move on the short-term expectations for what uh, the long-term future demand might be. Uh, we've now sort of settled down and, and the prices come back quite a bit. Uh, but that long-term demand story hasn't changed. Um, and so now is a, an interesting time to be looking at people who are engaged in cobalt mining. Now, because cobalt is only about 2% of cobalt globally is mined on its own, Meaning it's it's always mined along with nickel or copper. Um, the the supply is a very difficult sort of uh, picture to paint because the supply of cobalt is in some regards tied to the uh, supply and demand for nickel and copper. Um, but in the short to medium term, we expect to see uh, sort of a bump in the price of cobalt as a result of some mines coming offline. Um, and some mines producing below what they are expected to. And in the long term, uh, we expect the demand to pick up quite significantly uh, and for that to drive the price higher. Um, so the, the short to medium term picture for cobalt, which at the time of just to bring it back to cobalt 27, uh, so, so tying it back to cobalt 27, um, you know when the cobalt 27 transaction was proposed, uh, it appeared like we were going to have to wait uh, for cobalt price appreciation um, to sometime when the actual EV demand would increase demand for cobalt. Um, but what has happened since then is Glencore, uh, who is the largest cobalt miner in the world, uh, has come out and said that two of their mines in the DRC uh, are underperforming one of which is going to be put into care and maintenance uh and the other uh is going to produce about half the cobalt that uh they thought it was going to produce uh this year and so the the end result uh is that on the supply side uh the one mine that's putting being put into care and maintenance produces about 20 percent of global cobalt supply and so all of a sudden uh we we're looking like we may see a shortage of cobalt much sooner than we expected. Uh, and so not only frankly is one of the, uh, arguments for the cobalt 27, uh, takeover sort of, you know, it d- doesn't apply anymore. Um, but we may be looking at, uh, a nearer term rally in the price of cobalt, uh, based on supply constraints. Um, so we're, I would say, fairly constructive on cobalt going forward.
1: Yeah, and I think that this proposed transaction, it took away from you and the other investors that invested in Cobalt 27 that upside that you guys originally you know saw, which brought you into uh, that company. And then you also were kind of a lot of the, the pre-production uh, royalties and so forth that you mentioned. You know, you don't necessarily get... To, Get to experience that. And so, as you say, the the transaction just does not seem in the best interest of uh, shareholders. Regarding cobalt production and where these companies, the, the electrical vehicle or battery companies that will need future cobalt production, do you see almost a premium being put on cobalt? Not from the DRC because some companies don't even really want to buy from the DRC, from what I understand, just from a public relations standpoint.
0: We've talked with, we haven't talked with any automotive uh, OEMs, but we've talked with uh, battery manufacturers who supply people like Apple uh, and uh, Microsoft, um, so consumer products mostly, and they all um, say that. DRC cobalt is largely untouchable. Um, now, whether that uh, that concern continues uh, in the presence of a tightening cobalt market, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I would be, I'd be surprised how long. Uh, I'd be surprised if that, that concern can, can hold for that long. Uh, just given where the supply of cobalt is, how much is needed, uh, and what can be accomplished, um, from the potential cobalt producers, uh, say out of the United States where there are a couple of, or, or North America, where there are a couple of, um, you know, juniors who are exploring for cobalt or have, uh, cobalt assets that, that, uh, they're trying to bring online. It's just not going to be enough. So, um. I think for for the short to medium term, sure, they can, they can say they don't want cobalt from the DRC. But in the long term, uh, I don't really think a lot of us have much uh, in the way of choice.
1: In regards to nickel, uh, we've mentioned nickel so far in this interview. Uh, what's your outlook for nickel? We really like nickel. Uh,
0: we think nickel is actually sort of the overlooked battery metal. And this is sort of coming despite the fact that battery chemistry and cathode architecture is increasingly moving towards uh, nickel-heavy construction. Uh, Nickel is a little more complex than cobalt, uh, but a lot of the battery metals are a little more complex, it turns out, than some of the more base metals. So nickel uh, can be mined in either a sulfide or a laterite form. Uh, Most of the deposits globally are a laterite Uh, and especially those deposits in some place like, say, Indonesia. Um, And laterite nickel, uh, although it can be turned into what is called class one nickel, which is what you need for battery-grade nickel, uh, it's a very complex, very capital-intensive, very difficult process that a lot of nickel producers have struggled with. I think the sort of prime example of that would be someone like um, Shareit, uh, which is a Canadian nickel miner that has uh, a nickel mine in um, Cuba and Madagascar. Um, and I'm not, I'm not up to snuff on the company at the moment, but they they went through significant growing pains trying to produce uh, class one nickel from their uh, laterite deposits. The other deposits are sulfide deposits, and they are uh, much fewer um, and uh, there you can turn the nickel sulfide into a class one metal, uh, a class one nickel uh, in a much more efficient, much more direct way. And there are several very interesting uh, juniors in the nickel space that are focusing on sulfide uh, deposits.
1: Are there any companies that you'd like to mention that your fund invests in?
0: So we have looked at uh, Talon Resources Uh, which is a...
1: It's Minnesota, is it?
0: Minnesota, yes, exactly. They have a resource in Minnesota called Tamarack. We think that that is a very interesting deposit. That's a sulfide deposit, uh, and that company is well worth keeping an eye on. It's got strong backing um, and a very, very nickel knowledgeable management team. Um, I think that, you know, sort of like, as with all juniors, the, the team is a bit heavy on geologists and engineers they need a few more business people uh but i think that you know every every junior suffers from that that issue uh at their early stages so um the project is uh they haven't produced a definitive feasibility study yet uh, or a bankable feasibility study, but they've produced a, a preliminary feasibility study and the results are, are quite positive.
1: Yeah, And there's not a lot of primary nickel producers, are there? No, no,
0: definitely not. Um, and their
1: deposit,
0: the, the land package that they've got is um, comparable in size to, and I'm not saying that the nickel deposits in that land package are comparable in size, but the land package is highly prospective and is similar in size to other, um, you know, sort of primary historically significant nickel deposits, say like Sulz, uh, Sudbury or Vosi Bay or um, uh, Norilsk in in Russia. So it, it's quite an interesting potential opportunity.
1: What's your take on lithium? You know, over the past six months or so, lithium and the lithium equities have not performed well. Uh, what do you see for this market and where are you finding the best opportunities here?
0: I think lithium is another example of a sort of a complicated mineral uh, in that mining lithium should really be understood. (laughs) uh, Well, so so first you have both hard hard rock lithium mining, which is mostly done in Australia at the moment for what's called spotamine. um, And then Uh, You have the lithium brines, which everyone's sort of seen pictures of down in South America. Uh, And you can produce lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. And different types of batteries with different types of architectures require one or the other. Um, And so that gets quite complicated, sort of picking your your horse, if you will, you want to ride, because most firms don't produce both hydroxide and carbonate. Um, Now, what we see in the lithium space is that uh, there's more spotamine being produced than is necessary at the moment. Uh, what there is not enough of is processing capability for lithium of all kinds. And so our general take is that within the lithium space, you have the three big guys, which are um, Livent, uh, Albermar, and SQM. And because of the sort of chemical complication, Associated with lithium and the value add from being vertically integrated, uh, there's very little re and the sort of resource endowment that those three guys have. There's very little reason uh, to look at any of the juniors, um, and so you know the the refining is the sort of missing link for lithium, and because the juniors just don't have the capability and they don't have the experience. Uh, we're going to stick with the, the majors. Now, at the moment, we aren't invested in any of them. Uh, we think there is an opportunity to sort of be patient here. Um, but in the long term, I would look to one of those three personally. So um, and that, you know, one of the other issues is that uh, the, the car producers, the battery manufacturers are uh, intensely concerned about their supply chains. Um, and so, for a car maker and a battery manufacturer um, to secure a stable supply, they're not exactly going to be looking towards juniors first. Um, they're going to be looking first towards uh, someone they know can produce the product that they need at the specifications that they need. Um, all of the battery metals require uh, refining into not only, you know, say sort of a concentrate, if you will, but then into a technical, uh, a technical sort of qualification, uh, where there's a certain amount of, you know, a, a very little, uh, there's very few, um, impurities in it. And then they require refining again into a, a battery quality. And so that supply chain with all those different production and refining steps, uh, has got to be has got to be nailed down um, in order for any of these these uh, metals to be used, um, and I think that's that's overlooked. We actually see a pretty significant gap um, in in the ability to process uh, cobalt, process lithium, uh, process nickel, and get it to the state that the battery manufacturers need. Um, and a lot of that processing capability is uh, in China at the moment. And outside of China, there's very little of it. Uh, and quality control out of China is a mixed bag.
1: Would you invest in something having to do with processing then of these metals? Are there investments that you could your fund's uh, prospectus would allow you to invest in?
0: So we could invest in, in uh, some opportunities. Uh, at the moment, though, there really aren't any um that's that's part of the issue uh there are some lithium miners in australia who are mining spot uh, spotamine who have decided that they are going to become processors uh but they have no experience in processing they've never built processing facilities they've you know so this is a new you know a new line of business for all intensive purposes for them um and in some regards not only is it a new line of business but uh it's outside their sphere of competence. There's all sorts of new knowledge that they need to need to get. And so the opportunities in the processing space are, are very limited. And I would say that everyone needs to sort of keep their eye out for them uh, and create a long list of them um, and watch them for a while before they can really um, invest in one. Speculation is one thing, investment is another. Um, There are definitely opportunities in China. Uh, We don't invest in China, mostly because of the sort of the knowledge gap. We don't speak the language, we can't read Mandarin. um, We don't have any sort of contacts on the ground, uh, but there are definitely some opportunities in China for those who who can venture forth uh, to that jurisdiction.
1: Will your fund uh, massive capital, what was the genesis of it? Was it uh, your Bullish view on the EV revolution? Was that kind of like the generative uh, perspective that caused you to launch this fund?
0: No, I I would say that. um, So we consider ourselves a a sort of a liquid real assets fund. um, And the generation or the sort of evolution of our fund is just sort of looking out at the world um, and seeing that real assets. Uh, have been trading at a discount, if you will, to to other types of assets, uh, and we view the the real assets as a as a great long term opportunity in a world where um, we may face significant inflation, uh, where there are currency wars, um, or at the very least currency disputes. Wars may be a bit dramatic, um, and uh, where interest rates are you know going to zero, uh, if not already negative. Um, And so in in whatever comes next, uh, we view real assets as um, an important part of uh, a sort of complete portfolio. Um, So
1: Excellent. And uh, if listeners want to get in contact with you or learn more about your fund, how would they do that?
0: Uh, So our website is uh, just uh, www.massivecap.com. Our contact information is up there. Uh, We are Very responsive and always interested in talking with, um, you know, investors, whether they're interested in investing in us or they're just interested in talking about, you know, nickel and cobalt or whatever other sort of basic material or energy they're interested in.
1: Excellent. I appreciate your time today, Will. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. Oren Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits, and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Oren's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Oren has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Oren trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to Orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more.